Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I am your host, John Eversoll, and I am delighted to be joined by none other than Don Cher. Don, welcome. Great to be on here. It's uh, great to see a fellow podcaster at work, John. Oh, thank you. Your podcast is amazing. And we were talking a little before we started recording your experience about podcasting. And I wanted to jump on that. Could you go back a little and uh, tell the listeners about how your podcast kind of came about? Yeah, well, you know, not too long after I came to Poetry Magazine, um, I realized that, you know, Chris and I would talk back and forth about submissions, about about poems, about books we were reading. And uh, they had some other um, podcasts at the time at the Poetry Foundation. I thought, well, why why don't we have a podcast? And, of course, Chris is kind of um, reticent in many ways, you know, and he's not looking for public attention and stuff. And so I think he was a little reluctant to do it, but I I was pretty enthusiastic about it, and um, we didn't know what to do. So I just said, well, why don't we just talk? on the podcast the way we we actually speak to each other like people you know and uh, i think he was a little dubious about it and we had no idea if anybody wanted to hear such a thing or how to do it and we had some um good help from our producer curtis fox who has great ears and Mm -hmm. you know we just set the microphone up uh, basically at a table in the office and started talking and in the early days we'd have to shut the thing off uh, we were on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. We had to shut it off every time there was a siren. Oh, that's funny. Every eight or nine <laughs> start over. You know, but but that was the gist of it was, we, you know, from that day to this on the podcast, you know, we, we just talk. And, yeah. and it's pretty on the fly. It really is a joy to listen to. And I'm wondering, is there, now that you guys, you know, have been doing it for a while, have you, where do you record the podcast now? Is it still at the Poetry Foundation? Do you guys have an old, like a beautiful studio now? <laughs> well, you know, in the old days, we didn't have anything, <laughs> sort of a, a table, you know. Yeah. Um, and since then, we've moved in, you know, to the new building in, in Chicago. And there's a tiny little, it's technically what you would call a studio, sure. but it, it's kind of like uh, the size of a closet, maybe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's really the same deal. So there's a table with, a, you know, two microphones on it. Now we have two microphones. Um, but really the main improvement is it's soundproof so we can sort of continue speaking to each other without having to turn the machinery on and off every couple of minutes. Exactly. And do you ever uh, – are most of your guests over the telephone or have they ever come in in person? Um, most of them are on the phone. And yeah. sometimes, you know, we recently had a Scottish poet and – and so we were able to do that by having her go into a local radio studio, and we often do that and That's sort right. of wire everything up together. Uh, sometimes there's a bit of sleight of hand, but yeah, so, you know, we call people up or do it any way we can, and if they're around, sure, we'll fit them into the closet with us. Yeah, no, it's really enjoyable to listen to. Um, you brought up uh, Christian Wyman, and... You know, there's been things since you took over over at Poetry Magazine. There's little, and I've even kind of sensed it. I've been unable, I don't know, I'm trying to put my finger on it, but people are starting to pick up like, wow, there's this like entirely new vibe at Poetry Magazine since you took over uh, for Christian. I was wondering if you could think about um, what was it that Christian brought to the table that you were like, I definitely want to maybe keep that intact. And maybe things that, um, you know, that, you're, that you want to, to kind of follow your own vision about things. Because I always say this because people have started like, there's definitely this different vibe, but I don't know if I could put a finger on it. I'm not quite sure exactly uh, what it is. Can you talk to that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty much what what people would guess it is. I mean, the first thing I guess uh, Chris brought to the table uh, was me. <laughs> I mean, you know, he'd been editing the magazine on his own for a couple, of, you know, for for a few years. Right. Um, and then, um, you know, he brought me into the mix. And I think when you know, I'd never met him before and didn't know anything about him, you know, until you know we started talking about my working there. Yeah. And what we realized was that in a lot of ways, our our kind of inclinations and tastes and the way we do things were were were, were different, like completely different. Oh wow. Um, I like to say complementary. Sure. <laughs> um, but at the same time, we, we just hit it off, even though you know we were so completely different in a lot of ways. Um, we just sort of like we're, you know, in other ways, just sort of able to work well together, um, improbably enough. And so that kind of fueled um, a joint editorship that was very successful right. so that from 2007 until Chris left uh, last year. It was kind of, um, you know, a joint project. And, right. um, you know, the, the sort of creative and constructive tension between us resulted in the magazine in that incarnation. Right. And it was a little bit, I mean, I think Chris probably would cringe if he heard this. But to me, it was a bit like a marriage, you know? Sure. Like you don't have to be the same as the person that you're in a relationship with. It's often better if you're not, you right. know? And so you bring different strengths to the to the mixture. And um, I think we enjoyed that. And I think our readers did, too. When oh. I took over, it was kind of like, well, that, you know, we've done that. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, so now what you see is kind of what it's like <laughs> somebody like me <laughs> turned loose. <laughs> yeah. This is you separated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sort of like yeah. When 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 people split up, yeah. um, you know, the, you know, people go a little uh, wild there for a while. So, yeah. so this is like my wild years, maybe. I don't know, right. uh, but it is different. And you know, I think then too that. You know, rather than have something just go stale and predictable, um, you know, the magazine, uh, you know, needed it needed refreshing. Yeah. The vision is pretty much the same, but the substance of it is in texture and other things about the magazine over time as as things unfold. You know, yeah, they'll be different, and yeah. uh, that's that's the fun of it. But also, I think you know, it's a responsibility I have. No, definitely, and I think it's moving in the right direction. And it's funny how you said. Uh, Christian was sort of like when he cringed about the podcast. Um, I could see that he's almost absent on social media where you are like have a presence now. <laughs> and right. so it's very uh, – I sometimes think that your social media presence adds to, whether accurately or not, kind of a perception of the magazine in a way that you're um, – that I don't know, that you somehow – have your finger dug into the pulse of things. <laughs> Gouging them. <laughs> yeah, you're like stabbing it. And so, you know, when we look at the table of contents, we see familiar names, but we also see kind of a generation of poets that uh, haven't gotten a lot of attention in the pages of poetry. And I think that people are really, I mean, everyone I talk to is really kind of excited about the direction. So, uh, so that I is really so. great. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I mean, you know, it's a funny thing. I often think about this when I first started sending poems out um, to places like Poetry Magazine. First of all, the, the odds that you would meet or even know or be in the same place as, as you know, sort of an editor of a magazine like Poetry or 
or Paris or View. You know, the odds were small. You would send poems off. It's a black box kind of a process. You wouldn't <laughs> wow. know who was doing what and what was going on in that place and what they were thinking. And, you know, and I, and, you know, really a commitment of mine since I came to, uh, poetry was, uh, to change that because there's real people, uh, reading the magazine. There's real people editing it and producing it. There are obviously, you know, the poets are sending their work and we're all kind of, um, you know, together <laughs> in this process, the readers, writers, and, and editors. And so I feel like I, I just enjoy making that a very transparent process. You know, if somebody says something on social media, but I mean, I'm there, you know, <laughs> the yeah. poem, I'm reading it, <laughs> I'm thinking about it. And, and John, that's actually kind of how you and I have met. I mean, we've never actually met in person, oh, but we have met. And, and we're working, you know, um, both as writers and people who do sort of editorial work. I mean, there's no sense pretending you know, that, that we're somehow oddly unaware that we're all coexisting. Um, that, so yeah, that's really was, part of it. I was really thinking about that too. The um, <clears throat> And uh, I have to give a little shout out to my sister-in-law who got me on Twitter. And she's like, you really need to do this. I think you would enjoy it or whatever. And it has been a real big revelation. Um, it I never thought of it as a, a genuine kind of community of uh, maybe not entirely like-minded people, but people interested in the same things. And it has uh, really opened my eyes and I will never underestimate its power. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, and I like that. Oh, go ahead. Well, I mean, I was also going to say, you know, you also hear what people don't like and what they're unhappy with. It's <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> and I think that's important too. I mean, there's no, again, there's no sense pretending, you know, you know, a poem or, or an essay or review goes out into the world and, and you hear about it. But I like hearing about it and I, I think it's good for editors to know what people think just as much as I think it's important for them to, to know their own minds and have their own directions, you know, that in a way is not necessarily swayed by some kind of, you know, momentary popular, uh, you know, opinion. You know, you sort of, you know, you have to be kind of, um, aware of the immediate impact while at the same time realizing you have a much longer horizon of responsibility than what people think the month an issue appears, say. I mean, because people might, uh, you know, be reading, hopefully, some of this work a uh, uh, hundred years from now or something. So you have to sort of balance all these things. But um, I find it energizing. I mean, I really do. And I've met some of the most incredible poets through social media. I have as well. It's really incredible. That's just, I never envisioned it at all. It's funny that you brought up the idea that poems will, and I was just thinking about this the other day, uh, poems that will last a hundred years. And I started thinking like, you know, uh, you know, in the debates between, uh, conceptualism and like disposable text right. and all that jazz. Um, you know, that we had this idea that uh, we want poems to withstand the test of time. And I thought, you know, and I agree with that sensibility completely. While I know probably more uh, uh, people with a more maybe experimental ethos could care less about that. Maybe I don't know, but well, go ahead. the thing about that, the thing about that is it's, it's you know, it's it's not a simple linear thing. So, for instance, the love song of Jal for Prufrock, as everybody must get tired of hearing, was in Poetry Magazine mm -hmm. almost a hundred years ago, and the maximum number of readers it could have had at the time was, I don't know, three hundred. <laughs> I mean, there weren't a zillion subscribers or readers. <laughs> That's incredible to think at about. that time. 
But over time, it's not so much that Prufrock was built to stand the test of time. We don't know what the hell it was built for. Right. It just happened to. And what happens now is uh, over the lifespan of a piece of work like Prufrock, there are millions of readers. But nobody, nobody did that. Nobody calculated that. Nobody, you know, nobody was engineering that. That's just sort of how it happens. So I think um, that is very illuminating because I think sometimes. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's myself. I put some like ridiculous pressure on myself at times, like looking at the poem I'm writing and going, Oh my God, this is horrible. <laughs> you are like, <laughs> like this kid's like, I don't know. I can't, I do feel at times that pressure of, uh, writing a poem that somehow endures. And I think what you're saying is I have absolutely no control over that. <laughs> In a way, you don't. I mean, you know, again, just using Prufrock as, a, as an example, yeah. when that was published, I mean, you know, they got hate mail at Poetry Magazine. People said it wasn't a poem. All the stuff people will say now, you right. know, a hundred years ago. It's not a poem. You know, the guy's a psychopath. <laughs> to the psychopathic ward was what Lewis Untermeyer said. Oh, like a very famous critic and yes. poet and anthologist. You know, it caused a lot of trouble. It's just like like uh, in the February issue of Poetry, we have this long piece by Matea Harvey. Uh-huh. And people are going to say it's not poetry. Right. I mean, you can tell they're going to say that. Yeah. They've been saying it forever, and they'll say it again. As to what it is and what it means and if it's good or not good, I mean, that kind of gets sorted out. Um, really but it gets sorted out in a very different process than sort of the day-to-day debates that we that we engage in. Yeah, that's really true. I was talking to, uh, when I interviewed James Loggenbach, he was saying exactly the same thing. And I I remember being like liberated by this idea. Like when you're writing, that poem is going to just behave in the world as it's going to behave with almost little control that you have. Um, and that should be, in fact, very liberating instead of feeling crushed by current taste when you're composing your, composing your poems. Um, I want to, I want to kind of back up into your biography. Um, I keep seeing that you were born and raised in Memphis. And <laughs> well, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't born there, but I, I was you were, raised there. Right. You were born in Ohio. Is that right? I was, I was born in Ohio. And, you know, Robert, Robert Frost um, is from San Francisco, but people, you know, <laughs> rightly feel that he was, was a New Englander. So that's kind of the distinction there. I mean, I was born in one place, but really came from another. <laughs> and the place I came from is Memphis. Well, not a, it's. I've never been there. I know it's a great music town, but what? How was your uh, childhood, and uh, what was uh, what was your family life like? <laughs> I'd have to go to a shrink to discuss that. I don't mess around, Don. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, just tell me when my time is up and send me the bill. I mean, I mean, my family. You know, I don't know. I mean, I mean, there were there was. <sighs> Let me put it this way. You know. Uh, Memphis is a, is a distinctive place, although it is partly southern, it's more mid-southern. But beyond that, it is a quirky and idiosyncratic place. Mm-hmm. And uh, the best book I know of that describes it, to my mind, accurately and reflects my own uh, generation is Robert Gordon's book, It Came from Memphis. Uh-huh. You had, you know, Alex Chilton, William Eggleston, Furry Lewis. I mean, there was just uh, a lot of stuff swirling around, a lot of, you know, obviously backs and uh, all that kind of stuff, plus the uh, things going on in the 60s and 70s, you know, that were swirling around. Um, But one of the great things about Memphis was that uh, everybody is a character, and it's not really, it it isn't done on purpose. 
Um, people don't realize that they're characters. So there's something Faulknerian about it, um, you know, that people turn into these very striking personalities without, you know, having um, done that on purpose. So there is also an element of uh, surprise and more importantly, a sense that, like, nobody obeys the rules. Mm-hmm. This is kind of Elvis, you know. I mean, yeah. people don't obey the rules because they don't know what they are. They, there aren't any rules. There's just, like, you know, sort of a haze and a swirl. Well, that and, sounds uh, like a great uh, a great environment for an it, it was, it was kid pretty good. In. It was pretty good. I mean, I think if you were, like, me and my friends and you were interested in music or uh, you know, what, you know, whatever, whatever sort of creative stuff kids do, or you play in a band, which I also did, um, you were kind of at odds from day one with this sort of, um, dominant sorts of social structures. So that's not a bad thing. I mean, it sort of, uh, strengthens you and it gives you an ambition to mm-hmm. sort of break out, you know, yeah. sort of get out of town. And so, uh, when I, when I was about 17, I did, I got out of town. And where did you get out of town too? Well, it was something we thought about. You know, although I loved it there and, and glad I grew up there, you know, you're always kind of thinking, uh, how can I, how can I get out of here? I gotta get out of here. And so I was saying this to some friend of mine who was a lot smarter than I was, and he pointed out that a very good way to get out of town is like to go to college someplace else. Yes. So there it was a question of like where to go. And actually for a long time I wanted to go to Chicago. And I had a poster of Chicago on my bedroom wall because, well, the nearest big city, um, uh, uh, pardon me, St. Louis, but yeah. when I was a kid, you'd either go to Chicago, as a lot of people did. There were great migrations of people for generations from Memphis up to Chicago, or you'd go to New Orleans. But my friend, I, you know, he said, well, let's go to New York, you know. Oh, man. Great. How do we do that? <laughs> So um, we applied to schools in New York, and and so next thing you know, there we are in New York in the seventies. It was uh, great. That was great too. So how do you? You must have had. You must have been pretty solid inside because it seems that you survived the seventies in New York City. Uh, and where did you go to school there? And what was uh, that experience like? Well, it's kind of funny um, because I I didn't make very good grades in in you know in high school. Yeah. I was uh, sort of screwing around, getting in trouble, you know, thrown out and mm-hmm. <laughs> all that stuff. Um, but my my smart friend had applied to Columbia University, and so um, I said, okay, I'll do that too. Not sort of realizing, you know, you had to have good grades. <laughs> <laughs> so in the application materials, you had to write. Um, an essay and provide a reading list. Well, when I was getting in trouble, they would send me for punishment to the high school library. Oh my! And <laughs> they had punishment. all these great classics because no one ever read them. It was they just sent me to you know this like going to to jail or not. It wasn't like I'm sorry. It, you should expunge it. It wasn't like going to jail. Right. Um, but it was where I went for punishment, and I pulled the book off the shelf, and it was called Crime and Punishment, and I thought, well, <laughs> that suits my situation, you know. And it's a great story about, like, you know, bashing the landlord's head in. And I thought, wow, this is a good book. And next thing you know, unwittingly, I was reading really good books. Plus, my mom uh, was a librarian. And she would drop me, you know, off at the library and just turn me loose there. So the next thing you know, I'm reading all this cool stuff. And I just dumped all that. I was reading, like, Oswald Spengler (laughs) as a teenager. 
like, whoa. So I put all this stuff on the on the application, That's and I think they, they sort of liked that. But in the essay, they wanted you to talk about what you're reading, and I said, um, well, I'm reading Sahara of the Beaux-Arts by H.L. Mencken. Oh, my God. So, and then I put a little cassette tape of my bad music that I had written, Really? And uh, they, they let me in. So when I get in, and I'm in New York, when we, we you know, went out for a beer, and uh, one of the guys on the admissions team was there, and he said to me, you know, we took a pretty big chance on you. Because <laughs> <laughs> they could have filled the class with people from New York, you know, but they liked that I was from Tennessee. Right. And they got a big laugh out of my application. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's sort of, they, they enjoyed the co- unintentional comedy of my essay and stuff. And so they said, well, we'll take the guy. And for the first time in my life, I started making really good grades because I thought, if they kick me out of here, it's back to the South, right. I guess. Oh, my God. So, and, I, uh, so I sort of, yeah, oh, I buckled down. Exactly. And when did you slow, is that when you kind of, I don't know, like kind of poetry found you, when you started kind of reading it seriously? When do you think that occurred? Well, I'll tell you, um, I was not an English major. Mm-hmm. Um, I started taking classes with Elaine Pagels, and I became a religious studies major. Mm-hmm. And I was reading all these great ancient Near Eastern texts, right. biblical texts, and I and you know I was just completely absorbed in this and had a big crush on Elaine Pagels. You know, <laughs> and, uh, now at the at the time, uh, Columbia was an all male school, mm-hmm. and I had I had a girlfriend who was at Brown. And I used to go visit up there, and that was co-ed, and everybody looked so normal and happy. (laughs) So I transferred up there, and when I got there, there was a complete class I took. Um, And and on the reading list for this class were things, uh, uh, there was a lot of stuff, but it had um, Charles Olson and Pound and uh, Elliot's Four Quartets and all kinds of great modernist stuff and Williams and uh, Patterson, you know. And suddenly, you know, in, I'd grown up in Memphis. They didn't have any poets in Memphis at that time. So I thought a poet was a guy with a long gray beard who was probably dead. You know? Yeah. Uh, but shortly, right before I went off to New York with my friend, Allen Ginsberg came to town. It was the first time I'd ever seen a poet. And I just, wow. He started off with the harmonium, you know, and sure. the, you know, the ohm for 20 minutes. Definitely. And I thought, that is very that's very cool. That's very interesting. <laughs> so between seeing Ginsburg um, and then a couple of years later, you know, really reading these great uh, modern poetry books, I just, I just said, this is it. You know, I just love this. Um, I stayed a religious studies major, but uh, that that experience of poetry for me um, really did it. Just opened up a whole a whole world that they never taught us about before. That's incredible. And and your impulse to kind of take that religious track, was that kind of born out of family experience? Or, or what do you think that was all about? Um, I think it was because of the crush on Elaine Pagels, but also, <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you know, you know, we were reading these, um, um, you know, like what are now, what are now known because of her as the Gnostic Gospels. And right. so the sense that there was, there were these whole civilizations they don't sort of tell you about in, in high school <laughs> or Sunday school for that matter. Yeah. Just these immense, you know, these immense, um, sprawling civilizations with all the, the kinds of mysterious texts 
uh, that go along with them. Yeah. I became really fascinated with that. The, the, reading that is very much like reading uh, modernist poetry. Mm. You have to sort of uh, situate yourself and, and really work at it. And I enjoyed I, I enjoyed that. So I became um, interested in you know myths and poetry and anthropology, which is a pretty trendy thing to do at that time anyway. But um, really, the the ancient Near East was was just so uh, <laughs> absorbing to think about that 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 that's what I studied when I was when I was studying. <laughs> Definitely. When um, what? Did, how long were you in New York after you got? Uh, oh no, you went to Brown and you were in yeah, Rhode Island. To, that's right. How did you find the transition from New York City to like a more New England setting? Because I really like Rhode Island. <laughs> well. Uh, um, New York is great, you know, but I didn't have any money, and I think it's still true today mm-hmm. that, you know, if you're in New York and you have no money, it's kind of, uh, it's not <laughs> that much fun. It's, it's actually kind of very, it could be actually quite hard. Yes. And um, I was very naive. Um, when I first got to New York, I was meeting these other kids, and they were all from the same two towns, Andover and Exeter. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't understand it. I said, why are you guys all from the same places? prep school. I'd never heard of a prep school. I said, right. what the heck is that? <laughs> so New York was great and I and I had a blast, but it was a hard place to be for me, you know, just coming from you know, where I was coming from. It was a bit more than I could deal with. And then uh, Rhode Island, um, although it's totally different from Memphis, it has the same kind of aura, which is that there's a lot of strange and interesting things going on and the place looks a little weird mm-hmm. and you know, people are, are kind of off doing uh, idiosyncratic things. And so, you know, I, I, liked, uh, I liked Providence a lot. Um, and I stayed there for a few years after college, and, and uh, I did the thing you're not supposed to do, like marry. I married my high school sweetheart, and yeah. <laughs> we were 21 or whatever. Wow. You know, made a lot of significant errors yes. at that time. How long were you, <laughs> it, how long were you guys married? Around. Well, we we stayed married for um, like 15 years, mm-hmm. um, but then what? <laughs> one one day she came home and she's. Uh, I hope she's not listening to. <laughs> nah, she's not listening. You know, it's sort of like um, she was going to medical school, and um, you know, and I was one of those sort of liberal arts people who was like, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I I still am in a way, and you know, she kind of said one day, you know. Um, I think we should uh, have a separation. Right. And I and I said like, well, oh, oh, like for how long? And she's like, yeah, forever. Oh God. <laughs> so <laughs> that phase eventually ended. I mean, that by that time we lived in Texas for a while, and we yeah. ended up in Boston. Um, and I was in Boston for 21 years. Um, so I was there for quite a probably. I, I was I was in Boston for more of my life, really, than anywhere else. Yeah, oh, my gosh. <laughs> 15 years. <laughs> and, I mean, how did that impact uh, your own writing, you think? Uh, that's a significant partnership to be in for a while, and to have that narrative suddenly split off like that. Uh, yeah, I, well, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, there's a tendency, I think, if you're a writer or a musician or you know, sort of an artsy person. Yeah. You know, you want to go where the stuff is. So you think of places like New York, San Francisco, you know. But 
what I found was that when I was in places like um, Texas or Rhode Island, uh, I could do a lot because there weren't a lot of there weren't that many people doing the same thing that I was doing. Right. You know, so I saw that I you know you can feel like you kind of own it, like I'm here and nobody gets what I'm doing. And I had all kinds of jobs, you know, and people just think if they knew that I was interested in writing or poetry, they would just think, oh, that's, isn't that cute? <laughs> you know, that's nice. John reads all those books no one's read before in the library. <laughs> and they sort of thought, well, that's great. And so I had jobs where you could read kind of on your own or think of yeah. your thoughts or go home and write. And it was, uh, it was great. It was great. But when I got to Boston, uh, and what year you, know, you don't get a cup of coffee and everybody in there is writing in a notebook. Right. What year? <laughs> like, hey, wait a second. I'm the only one who's doing this. Nope. So it was harder. I think it was harder for me. You know, you you you, you got a sense. Of, um, I mean, it was nice to have bookstores and go to readings and meet people who are doing it. But in your heart of hearts, you kind of you know, there was a hot house mentality that I think could be hard yeah. for a lot of the people. It was hard for me, that's for sure. Yeah, what um what year did you get to Boston? Mm, Nineteen eighty six. Eighty six. You ended up being curator at Woodbury around two thousand. What are you doing for those years in between before you got the job at Harvard? Oh man. <laughs> Do I even want to know? I had a, I had a lot of weird jobs. So were you just like working weird jobs, cranking out poetry when you could? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, for a long time, I worked in libraries uh, because that's a very handy way to read a lot of um, books, especially poetry. Because in most libraries, the poetry books are still on the shelf. You know, they don't get checked oh. out frequently. That's so true. So my first sort of uh, real job. Uh, $8,000 a year. I worked in a library and sort of, because I wasn't an English major, I was reading a lot of stuff, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I just kind of read from the A's to the Z's. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and I didn't know, you know, well, like there were people, okay, Yates, like I knew he was, a, that would be a good poetry. But I mean, I was reading all kinds of poets without necessarily realizing, you know, what their reputations were. And that was a good thing. That was a really good thing. And I had a lot of time so I read through all that stuff and I had other jobs I um I for a while I worked at a community college I worked at a junior college at one point I was driving a truck between the campuses of a junior college and you know they would just you know fill up the van in the morning and uh, take off and they were like as long as I came back <laughs> the truck and hadn't had an accident they were cool so I could read and do all that stuff. It was great. It was yeah. really great. I like um, how you got these jobs uh, where you you made sure, like I think, and I was attracted to those same type of jobs where uh, kind of solitary, but kept you moving. Um, involved chances to read. <laughs> it's just it's so funny how many uh, how many writers find the same type of jobs. But you were about to say something. Well, yeah, because I, I mean, after a while, I was I was very directionless, you know. And most of the people I knew, they like knew like what they were going to do, you know, with their lives. And yeah. I, I was sort of uh, drifting. Um, and at some point, um, I, I mean, I just thought, well, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll have to really, you know, sort of get people to mentor me a little bit. And uh, when I was like 29, I guess, um, I was working again in the library part-time, and I thought, well, maybe I should go to one of these uh, writing programs. So, 
I ended up in the writing program at Boston University where mm-hmm. um, I, had, I had great teachers, Derek Walcott, Sounds. George Starbuck, Christopher Ricks, um, William Aerosmith, uh, really great mentors, you know. And, and when you went into that, were all you, the other... were, sorry to interrupt, were you kind of locked into poetry at that point? Oh, well, I thought I was, yeah. Okay. I pretty much was. All I right. wasn't sure what I was going to do. Because I was older than the other people in the workshop, mm-hmm. they were all like most, more or less, mostly out of college. You know, right, right out of college, and they, they were just gonna, they wanted teaching jobs. Whereas it never occurred to me. Like I didn't realize <laughs> you would do that. <laughs> I thought you'd go to a writing program and still be essentially the same sort of so- uh, hapless person. Yeah, what at was the end of it than before, and all these guys were like looking at teaching jobs, and I thought, well, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. I didn't realize it. So, um, you know, I, I just thought, well, I'm, I'm still going to be kicking around, but, you know, these mentors are great. Like, I'm, I, I mean, I'm really learning a lot. I mean, they were kicking my ass and getting me to sort of straighten up and be serious. Uh, because it's hard to take yourself seriously when, you know, when you're sort of, you know, sort of working these jobs and yeah. getting nowhere and you're, you know, you're nobody and sending work out and, yeah. you know, it's hard, right? So, I then did, yeah. I, I became pretty serious. I thought, no, this is this is the thing I've got to do. And um, in that same first year um, that I was in Boston, I just sort of walked in to the office of Partisan Review, <laughs> offering <laughs> my services, which were non-existent really. And I think they looked at me and were just appalled. <laughs> what is this apparition? <laughs> so I said, I, you know, I just said, I, you know. What I'll do anything. I'll do anything. Yeah. And I stayed there for about 18 years. I mean, not as a full-time. It wasn't a job, really, or a full-time thing. But I really started doing, I mean, like, putting books on the shelf and hiding when the real editors yeah. came, uh, typing up letters, sometimes answering the phone. And over time, um, I learned, I mean, honestly, I learned Everything about how a literary magazine works, oh, you know, see. from from A to Z, from beginning to end, and and that's where I really uh, was sort of educated about right. editorial work. And what a place to get an education! Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it's sad, really, because you know it was killed off, and it's largely forgotten now. I think, except by sort of literary scholars. Right. But it was a great magazine then. At sort of the end of its life, um, and the editors had become kind of weird. <laughs> like, what do you mean? They become sort of neoconservative people, oh. but the but the poetry section was, um, you know, still held in some esteem. And the poetry editor was Rosanna Warren, and I mm-hmm. became her assistant. And then she taught me, you know, just all kinds of uh, wonderful things about how to do that work. And uh, I got the hang of it, I guess. You know, I started off, I, one of my jobs there was early on, I would have to make notes on submissions, you know. Really? <laughs> it's just sort of, because they had this very complex structure of readers. They had first readers, second readers, third readers, and then the editors. And so things would go up this ladder on these rungs, you know. And I was the guy at the very bottom. <laughs> so I did this for years. And I and, and I, eventually I thought, well, nobody's reading these little slips of of paper, you know. Oh. So I thought, well, I'll just say what I really think. 
Yeah. You know, so, so, so problems are coming in. I can say what I really think. The <laughs> dilemma was if you passed up the ladder too much stuff, they would smack you down because they would say, look, not everything you're sending us is good. Yeah. So cut it out. But yeah. if you never sent anything, they would figure out you were worthless because what were you doing down there? Right. So you had to get it right. And uh, But I just assumed, well, who, I'm nobody. So I started just writing uh, little essays on all the submissions. Awesome. And after a couple of years of this, the editors called me to the office. I thought they were going to throw me out. <laughs> and they had a bunch of these slips on the desk. Oh, my <laughs> I thought, oh no. <laughs> they were reading. And uh, William Phillips said, well, you know, we've been reading these comments you've been writing. <laughs> I thought, oh no, here we go, <laughs> big trouble. And uh, you know, he sort of very reluctantly said, you know, it seems like you know, it seems like you know what you're doing. You know, it seems like you have a good eye. Right. Uh, so now we want you to do like more serious editorial work. And he hastily added, you know, that this new responsibility. And 50 cents would not buy me a cup of coffee. That, that was my introduction to editorial <laughs> work. This is largely true for many years. That is uh, incredible. So they gave me a chance. And then, you know, I, uh, I, I worked very hard at that and still kept my other jobs going. And, yeah. you know, with going to school and working and doing all this stuff. And then uh, eventually I sort of, you know, people, I think, realized that I, was able to do this editorial work that I had learned a lot about poetry from kicking around and reading it and, and sort of educating myself. And, um, the thing about Harvard was it was honestly, it was kind of a fluke. I, <laughs> I don't know why they hired me. <laughs> I'm totally convinced that tell me you're working on like a book of personal essays about this stuff. <laughs> it is really fascinating because you've kind of exercised this, perseverance and I think it's interesting too because you I don't know what you ended up getting your degree in but I I find it really interesting that you didn't get it in English because I think that allowed you to come to poetry and literature from an angle that was probably beneficial and and then you had that like light bulb moment in Boston where where you're like I gotta start taking myself seriously (laughs) and and then things started kind of like mysteriously falling into place and so you got to Harvard and what happened there well, I, you know, uh, I was the poetry editor for Harvard Review, but also the curator of poetry. Yes, working in the Woodbury Poetry Room, and I, my job was to um, acquire books, poetry books for Harvard, and take care of that collection and add to it. And I created um, their first project to digitize and preserve poetry audio because they had a great audio archive that was disintegrating oh, wow. on old tapes and discs. So I came up with that and um you know i was there for seven years and, and very happy very, it was a great and it was like a dream dream job for a poetry writer i know you were Just probably like pinching time. yourself like all the time <laughs> every day every day and tell me about every like, single day why you know you're kind of it sounds like you know things are starting to really kind of crystallize professionally what's going on with your poetry your first book has already come out, is that right? You know, my first book was actually a book of translations of poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, the Miguel Hernandez I started uh, because when I was a teenager, lonely in New York, 
I was hanging out in the sort of dark corners of the library, and um, I had taken Spanish in high school and just started reading uh, poems in Spanish without, hmm. again, without really knowing sort of what it was I was doing or or who to read. And I stumbled on Hernandez, and I, you know, started mentioning him to a lot of people, and they didn't really know him. Yeah. So for myself and for them, I would translate these poems, and people would say, "Oh, these are these are great poems." Um, and I was still doing that, um, off and on. And Derek Walcott sort of <laughs> he he sort of didn't like my own poems at first. <laughs> that was his pedagogical method, was to sort of break you down. <laughs> right. And so. You know, it's like, well, what else are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> like, like translating else. these other poems that are like better than mine. Oh wow! And he looked at him and he said, "You know, you know, you should really keep doing that. You should translate those. You should do that. You should work on that." And again, it was a thing where I didn't really know how seriously I should take it. And he said, "No, that you you should do this." So I did that, and uh, <laughs> that set me off in that direction. So that um, in 1997. Uh, my first book was was really these translated poems of uh, Miguel Hernandez from Blood Axe. Yeah. And around that time too, I edited uh, a book called Seneca in English for Penguin Classics. Yeah, that. <laughs> so my first books were not uh, books of my own poems. I think that is so interesting. What did the experience of translating do for you as you you know just approached your own poetry? You know, a lot of people naturally ask about this. Yeah. And they assume that I have some affinity with a poet poet or poets that I've translated. Um, but I don't. Uh, Miguel Hernandez was a very courageous guy. Uh, he only lived to be 31, but you know, he got caught up in the Spanish Civil War and endured uh, great hardship, poverty, and disease, and eventually was given a death sentence by Franco. Um Although they didn't execute him, his health deteriorated in Franco's prisons, and he died there as a young poet. Um, so for me, there's nobody more different for me than a Miguel Hernandez. Hmm. So actually, what's happening there is that his work, again, this is you know, it's funny. I never thought about it somehow, but it's sort of like what we were talking about with Chris Wyman. The difference between me and this other poet was the was the field of creative work. Right. It's just this courageousness, this nobility, uh, this involvement in a world that I can only imagine. Right. And can't even really imagine. Sure. Was what really got me going and really just um, created a place in my own imagination where a kind of passion was able to come through in, in the translations. If I related to him, you know, like, so, you know, on some very personal level and said, yeah, yeah, you know, we're, we're the same, you know, we're just, you know, we're kindred spirits. It would have been a bore for, I mean, the results would have been boring. I think that's right. You see, <laughs> you have a pattern of putting yourself into kind of healthy antagonisms, it seems like. Yes, because I, I you know, I think it comes from uh, a kind of, um, thinking about literature that Emson articulated. I didn't know Emson as a young person, but he he has said that really the purpose of uh, creative literature is um, to come into contact with people who have different values than you do. Right. You know, that is actually the value of what we're doing. 
with things like poetry. And I guess I instinctively always felt that way. I mean, again, growing up in a place where there's a lot of different um, things happening, different kinds of music, different races, different um, political viewpoints, is actually a constructive and strengthening aspect of our own culture. It's a good thing. Um, and we benefit from it. Um, in a way, I was lucky all along to find very few people who sort of liked what I liked or thought what I thought because right. you had to really work at what you were doing to get anywhere. Otherwise, you'd just be hanging around. Everybody would be going, yeah, I love Frank <laughs> O'Hara. You know, exactly. yeah, I love, you know, whoever it is. It's very easy. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that it didn't happen for me that way. No, and I think there's a huge benefit to that. I think you're, I think I agree with that in the sense of like when I see uh, poetry or criticism or poetic theory that kind of intuitively strikes me as like, oh wow, I don't share that. It does simultaneously force me to evaluate and reevaluate my own literary values. That's really great. So, past the translations, your work, how do you see? Because we're going to read, you know, from Wishbone today. I'm wondering how your work, as you see it, through Union, Squandermania, to Wishbone, where do you see kind of your trajectory as a poet? Uh, did you, you know, I, I don't know if it was Logan or William Logan, who's like talking about like a poet by their second or third book is kind of like settles in. And I don't think he meant it in a bad way, just kind of like kind of fi <laughs> <laughs> totally, you know, pitches it in. No, you know, kind of finds their their voice, their style, and their kind of, you know, where do you see your trajectory as a poet? And I want to get back, too, because I like what you're saying about kind of this, this kind of cultural component, because when I read your work, and it's something I admire so much because I have a hard time doing it, you are so open to importing the historical moment you know, and the cultural moment into your poems, and it never dilutes it or traps it into kind of a time frame. But how have you I, seen your work uh, kind of change over time? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I mean, I really appreciate what, what you've just said because I think that that, um, again, that's a strengthening thing. You know, um, I'm not really writing about myself or some character who is myself, but we all actually do, I mean, we live in this historical and cultural moment. There's no sense denying it, but as we do so, most of us are ordinary people, and right. we have ordinary shit going on. <laughs> you know, we get married, we split up, yeah. you know, or what, you know, day-to-day -day stuff is not on a different plane from the political stuff and historical things that we're implicated in and participate in or, or or maybe some people also choose to kind of ignore, but you can't. So that the great things happening that you read about, I mean, by great I don't mean good, I mean like the larger things that transpire around us, which right. are history in the making every day, yeah. they impinge upon our personal relationships. They create the atmosphere in which we connect with each other or fight with each other or, um, you know, you know, good as well as terrible things unfold every hour, every moment. And so I just feel like, you know, the poems I write get caught in that, you know, that kind of mesh. Yeah. Um, it's I think just a part of it, you know. And so now think about what, what um, William Logan says is interesting because that may be true if you're well-known as a poet. So that if you're 
I'm not going to use any names, sure. but you know, a, a well-known poet. It's unlikely that somebody's going to say, you know, like this one's okay, that one's, you know, this one's no good. That you know, <laughs> like nobody's going to edit a famous poet too terribly much, right? You know, because presumably they know what they're doing and they're succeeding at it, and they have a readership and people like it. And that being the case, there probably is a tendency to sort of work from the things that have worked for you before with some modifications. But I've never really gotten anywhere as a poet. <laughs> I don't have that problem. <laughs> so for me, you know, if there's a book of poems, it you know, it really isn't under the shadow of any previous accomplishment because uh, uh for better or worse, I don't have that. <laughs> so I don't have there's no poet who's me that I have to live up to that or so uh, <laughs> you know, deal with in any way. So, so you, there's a freedom there. Yeah, I was gonna say, do you find that you write very different poems or or that you yeah. just are not constrained like, oh god, I gotta satisfy this like expectation, you know? Well my first book uh was sort of you know, the structure of the poems was in a certain way intricate. I was not a formal or formalist poet, but I did, you know, if you look at books like uh, Derek Walcott's Midsummer, where there, where there's, you know, the sounds and lines and words have definite relationships to each other. Yes. The patterns, music-like patterns emerge without, like, a lot of calculation beforehand right. or afterwards. That that sort of made a big impression on me. So my first book was kind of, uh, you know, I think, and I think when you're, you know, working on the poems that turn into some kind of a vision of a first book, you're trying to be very, very, I don't know, you know, you're trying to be good. Yeah. You do. So I was trying to be good. And my first book came out from Zoo Press, which yeah. as soon as that book came out, the press imploded. And they were pretty infamous press, actually. I mean, yeah. I mean, they kind of. Yeah. Like, I didn't know that's crazy. So right when the book came out, yeah. <laughs> so I, I was sort of stymied for a while. You know, I, you know, you, you can imagine it's so exciting. You have a book. It's what you've wanted, and there it is. And then next thing you know, it's like it might as well not have existed. <laughs> so like, I, I, you know, I thought, well, um, first of all. Um, I don't want to do the same thing all the time. You know, few of us really do. And there was no point in it. It's not as if I had a first book with a reputation to live up to or, you know, like I can see where if a lot of people buy a book, you know, it's Delmar Schwartz syndrome. You know, he has a book and he's praised by the great poets of his time. And then the question is, oh, God, now what? What am I going to do? I'll do what I did before. That worked okay. No. So I didn't have... Uh, you know, I didn't have any of that to worry about. So right. in uh, Squandermania, you know, I just thought, you know, um, uh, I, I have no choice. I'm just going to write as me, you know. And at that time, it was right when um, uh, September 11th had happened. Yeah. There was a lot of um, sort of rhetoric, political rhetoric yeah. that uh, caused most of us, I think, <laughs> even to this day, that you know, you question like, okay, somebody is saying this, but are, do they really mean what those words are saying? Right. So, so I was caught up, um, like so, like all of us were, in a world where, you know, our, uh, the sort of standard articulations of things were not right. No, that's something, so true. Something that just didn't make sense, you know? It's weird and how so like, I, historical moments kind of boil over its own lexicon in a way and, and changes 
it forces us to like hear that language in a in a way that's just disturbing. <laughs> it's really well, it's, I mean, you know, I was living in you know in Boston. And Boston had a connection to the events of the yeah. 11th, as everybody knows. And, you know, when they would go on TV and they would say, we fight the terrorists abroad so we don't have to fight them at home. Right. I was trying to make a home for myself, you know, and I kept thinking, like, the home I thought, <laughs> you know, sort of American way of life, home. Yeah. Uh, you get Maybe I'll have a house, you know, and yeah. a kid and all that stuff. And you just think, uh well, they're saying that the terrorists are going to be running down my street. Right. <laughs> you know, we better fight them over there because they're going to be, you know, and so I was struggling, you know, and I talked to my folks and, I, you know, my folks had lived through the Depression and uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, if we thought like you do, you wouldn't even be here. Right. <laughs> so there's a kind of sense that. Uh, in in the poems that I was working on for Squander Mania, yeah. that you had to emerge from this welter, that you had to, you know, there were a lot of questions, but that you couldn't just ask questions, and you couldn't just be dubious, and you couldn't be afraid, and you couldn't be cynical. You had to do something, and you had to do things that were right, but there was no way to know what that might be, and there was no way to fit it into the larger scheme where all these things were happening that you had no control over. So... um Squandermania was, uh, I didn't make up that word because I would never make up a word. <laughs> it's just me. Uh, it's a word that was used in things like the Economist magazine. And it means pretty much what you think. It's just like you take something that there's a lot of it and you just piss it away. Oh, and my God. So I was very interested in the sort of, the you know, the profligate uses of of our everyday language, which were being kind of emptied out. Yeah, no. Ways. You know, plus our material squander manias. I mean, this, these are all common places. In other words, these are not big ideas I'm having. They are, in fact, the opposite. These are the, I was confronting the stuff that everybody says, that everybody thinks about. We all think stuff like this. And I was just thinking, well, to me, that's the subject of poetry. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a beautiful title. And it almost, there's a hint of like acidity to it that gives it kind of a bite, you know, like, I'm like, it has a little bit of I'm pissed off to it, too, you know? Well, I was very, you know, <laughs> I was very angry. I think a lot of people were. Um, there was a lot of tension, um, a lot of uncertainty. And, yeah, you know, sort of being afraid, you know. And, and, I, and you, you know, um, under the pressure of these larger circumstances, mostly political and economic, people do get, you know, they because they're, they go... Bullshit. Yeah. I mean, that's happening every. It's ridiculous to even say it. Um, but yes. Yeah, so, so. But I thought, you know, it's funny. Uh, this is sort of how that book came about because after the death of my first book, I was about ready to give up, you know. But I did a reading at in, in the at the bookstore in Amherst, uh, the Amherst bookstore, and I had some of these poems. I kind of uh, thought they were angry poems, and I was reading them, and people were laughing. <laughs> I was really, you know, sort of pounding the, you know, the, the podium with my fist rhetorically. And everybody was laughing. And so I asked somebody, I said, why were people laughing? I was so angry. You know, I was an, a, a, a sort of amorphously angry person in these poems. And people were laughing their asses off. 
And uh, my, I think it was my friend John Hennessy who said, uh, no, but, it, but it's, it is funny. And I thought, right. you know, um, there is a kind of humanity in in that. So, yeah, there was a bite and also a kind of uh, a sense of the <laughs> irredeemable comedy of it. Um, and I thought, well, I, I guess I'll go with that. That's what I'll that's what I've got. I don't have anything else. You know? and so that's where that was. Yeah, it's really steeped out of that time. And and how do you see kind of how did Wishbone come about? And how do you think it kind of responded to the world when Wishbone came out? I mean, you're still locked into the cultural moment now. This that kind of 2011 September 11th kind of the epicenter of that and what it did to everyone. And now you kind of, it's almost like a, it's a weird echo of that time. You know, I'll ask students sometimes like, and I love asking them like where they were on September 11th and they keep getting younger, you know, like sixth grade, fifth grade. I'm like, wow, that was like one of the most central historical events of my lifetime. And it's starting to even be kind of, like my memory is being squandered of that event. Because of, <laughs> right. You know, so I'm wondering, like, Wishbone has a graveness to it that at least the title Squander Mania doesn't seem yeah. to have in a way. Well, I mean, so for Wishbone, what I realized was, again, these are commonplaces. I'm not putting them forward as, like, brilliant perceptions. It's the opposite <laughs> of that. That's what we all know, is there's... All this mobility, um, we move around, we're connected with people all the time, um, literally and figuratively and electronically and metaphysically. We're just connected yeah. and we never disconnect and we move geographically and we sort of wander around our cities, our towns, our houses and neighborhoods and we're sort of on the move, but like where are we moving to? And you know, you, know, you don't have to know. <laughs> There's a sense of movement, and yeah. part of that movement is the movement of ideology, so that there are different political beliefs, there are religious beliefs, and they're swirling around us. Yet when you read sort of the news accounts or, you know, everything seems uh, black and white or reified or clear in a way that everybody knows isn't so. Right. There isn't. There, there, if you have clarity, it's because you believe something and you don't believe what other people uh, believe if they are different from you. Going right. back to that Simpson thing. So, for me, Wishbone was kind of um, a way of tra- you know sort of being in transit further through my life. And during the time I was working on those uh, poems, I mean, you know, there were people in my family who were sick or dying. Right. All this sort of again usual turmoil uh, that we all you know nothing special about it, but that this. You know, you know. Uh, I, I read a lot of poetry, obviously, and it, it could be that I read more poetry than <laughs> almost anybody. I think so. Because we read all the submissions of poetry, you know, it's just me and Christina and, and Lindsay, and we read everything, 120,000 poems a year. Yeah. So I read poetry, and there's a kind of tone or register in a lot of poems that doesn't mirror the way I know people think. Yeah. And Derek Walcott said something very interesting to me back when he was slamming me. <laughs> he said, you're more interesting when you talk than you are in your poems. <laughs> it was a devastating lesson. <laughs> so for me, I, from that day to this, I've always become very attentive to that 
disconnection, even, you know, not only in myself, but everywhere. So sometimes, you know, I meet so many poets and then I think, is their work as, at least as interesting as they are as, as people, as human beings? Right. That to me is sort of a test, you know. Um, so unfortunately, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I don't belong to, nor would I, uh, and in my job, I can't, I can't sort of be affiliated with or even um, sort of intimately sympathetic with any particular school of poetry. I mean, I'm a magpie. Um, well, I think this bears I'm a project, whatever you want to call it. I sort of move around, a jackdaw, I don't know, a brickler. I mean, a lot of us, it sounds pretentious because we it, we who write poems are forced to become pretentious in that activity to some extent. I mean, you brave that risk and try to surmount it if you're any good. But the truth is, I don't, I don't, you know, there was no um, school or particular um, kind of poetry to which I could gravitate personally. Yeah. So, Obviously, you know, I just sort of got stuck sounding pretty much like what I sound like. No, I think that's great. And it's something I think so many poets, including myself, uh, like kind of had a struggled with is that here, I, like I, I'm kind of very egalitarian in my taste. I know how to appreciate various types of poetry, yet for whatever reason, at the end of the day, I write my poems. You know, like I'm always struck by that I, between my own sensibility as writing a poem, as I write a poem, while also having the ability and generosity to see all kinds of modes of composition. And uh, it sounds like, and I think you talked about this with Squandermania, that you just decided, I got to just sound like myself. I got to be myself. And, and yet it's not, you know, it, it, and, and this is very much um, what you're saying. And yet it isn't, as they say, about me. So the more I, re you know, um, right, right. Another great piece of advice I got as a young poet was, uh, I mean, I was trying to be clever, you know, like we all are at that yeah. stage. And, oh, somebody said, look, um, just you've got to read Ben Johnson because read all of it, because he, all of his poems, because he was witty, but you can't imitate him. Um, but you can't make, you know, so it's almost like an education, a deep education in poetry is what allows you to be yourself. You can't just be yourself without being informed by something or a lot of things. And the more I read, the more I could sort of figure out what would be, okay, so you, all right, so, you know, there's no sense imitating uh, Emily Dickinson. There's no sense imitating Seamus Heaney. There's no sense imitating Kenny Goldsmith. <laughs> yeah. Right. There, there's just no, so in the end, you read to discover what's left over for you to do. Right. And the more you read, the more you sort of figure out, well, this is my little thing over here because I'm well aware that all these other things have been done by people who will, will do them better than you. My, my old teacher, George Starbuck, also taught me this. It was great. I, I don't know. I wrote some poem and brought it in to him, and he read it very carefully, yeah. very silent, yeah. staring at the page, <laughs> stroking his chin, and he's a very quiet guy. Usually, and he said, um, hmm, "This is a very good poem. This is a very good poem." But um, I know of a better one on the same subject. 
Right. It's called Frosted Midnight by Coleridge. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Oh, well, I'll talk to you later, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, the stakes are very high. Yeah. So it's not just, ooh, you know, I'm, I'm writing the way I write. You have to know what that is. You have to know what it's worth, if anything. You have to know what it means. You have to know uh, the things to do that have been done better so that you don't sort of churn out weak worthless imitations of what someone else has really done, you know, past the point of our imagining. Oh, that is great. Let's uh let's go ahead and hear some of these poems, um, and crack open uh Wishbone if you don't mind. Sure, sure. So with all that build up people will realize how modest <laughs> and I'm not being silly about that, I mean how modest my claims are for my own work. I do not <laughs> No, I, I don't go around thinking I'm this terrific poet. No, I just, no, I think I actually, think what, that, but. I think people are gonna, especially younger poets. I think are really gonna love what you just said. I think it's really gonna clarify some things for them. And uh, it's interesting. I did want to ask you because when you were talking about personal experience, you know, you're quick to demote it as nothing special. And I was, and I don't think when you, I don't think you're saying when you have these human experiences in your personal life, you just shrug and blow them off and be like, hey, look, you know, everyone does this. <laughs> you know, like, so at some point in your poetry, you do talk about the personal, but like you said earlier, it is always meshed in that which is larger than your personal experience. And I think that is like one of the true strengths of your poetry is, is the meshing. I, I loved when you said that because that's exactly how I felt your poems felt. They felt meshed with the lived world and you in it. So uh, that was really, really a beautiful way to put it, a meshing. Um, so you're welcome. So I sent you uh, a little list because yep. I was a little dictator about it. Um, <laughs> but I was hoping you could go ahead and read on page 41 uh, the gospel truth. And if there's anything you want to say about it uh, before you read, feel free to. Well, you know, I, I'll just preface it by saying in Squander Mania, I, I put all these notes um, because the welter of information that was so interesting to me became literally hysterical and was part of the squandering and the squandering. <laughs> and then people were always say, I mean, you know, it's like, that's just too much. Right. So in this book, I, you know, I don't have any notes really. There's no, you know, the sources are just the things that surround us. And that includes books, you know, that we're all reading and chattering away about in social media. So there are, things that underwrite these and little bits taken from them. Sure. Um, so there's not much explanation to do because the explanation would like sink the boat of the poem, <laughs> <laughs> which is as it should be. But anyway, this is, yes, this is the gospel truth. St. Matthew did not know that mites live in our eyelashes or he'd not have indicted us for our motes and beams. Every character in my name, a mark of resolves. Notwithstanding, all I have is a forlorn inclination, but even that seems to be bent. The strips of insulation in the attic hang down, flayed and torn. We need a new border and ought to poison the chickweed before it goes dormant. Where is he, meanwhile, who will save us, wound in his side? The one who knows is off on another job, collecting taxes 
impervious to the indignity of having been reborn. Oh, that is great. Thanks for reading that. There's, you really, it made me think when you were talking about your time studying with Derek Walcott, the idea that when he said, it's so amazing, he said, like, you know, you talk a lot better than. <laughs> <laughs> Here's and, proof, you just heard it. <laughs> and really, like, I think this poem, like, really could have gotten away from you in the kind of level of diction, but it never does. But that he also, and I think you were talking about, um, his book Midsummer or whatever, that you learn from that this kind of the embrace to preserve the musicality and to also achieve your kind of genuine speaking voice. And I feel like I think that's really like the book reading this is is a mark of maturity in the sense that a lot of times I read poets who embrace the conversational tone and and that music vanishes. And yet, if yeah. we look through this poem, I mean, we have forlorn, you know, torn, border, dormant, all those O-R sounds. Um, it's really, really gorgeous, all these kind of internal music. And I think, I don't know if you would agree, but when that happens, it seems to happen mysteriously, especially with those internal rhymes seem to, rarely in my experience are they like big time kind of word choice premeditated do you find that like all these internal rhymes kind of seem to generate and blossom on their own as you compose it's really they really do they really do you know um that's why for me it, it, you know we don't hear so much about it now but there used to be all this struggle between sort of formalists and and you know sort of people who are open field kind yeah. of people you could say and I don't experience any of that. I, I I think you put it better than I ever could. I think if you if you're sort of reading and listening and thinking and sort of you know muttering to yourself <laughs> or singing in the shower, um, yeah, those sounds they they come and they and they blossom and they're there. They're there in the language everywhere. And it's just a matter of you know letting them in. I think when people start manhandling their poems and yeah. you know tugging on one end of the thread. You know, they risk losing um, a kind of music because they're worried about what sense it will make or what, you, you know, they're worried about what people will think, right. which is good. I mean, you know, you should worry about that. But I think there's a kind of self-consciousness that I have tried to expunge from that process. Yeah. You know, I, I don't have anything, uh, you know, it's a kind of negative capability. I, I don't have designs upon anybody. Right. I hear, I do hear, you know, the sounds in the words that we use, and and when they come, I I snare them, you know, if I can. Yeah. You know, the goal anyway. I think you do definitely, and it's funny that you brought up your humor uh, earlier, and I think being that humor almost derives from that attentiveness to the sound of language. Um, I still I'm still kind of teasing that out, but a lot of times I don't know if this is true for you, but I've I've read like. I had I had this poem that's coming out later and it's taking forever to get published because that's just the pace things are happening. So I'll go back to it to be like, what is this? What, let me look at it with fresh eyes. And I will actually catch these internal rhymes or whatever that I didn't even even know when I like submitted the thing. It's really, I don't know, it's just one of the joys, I guess, of composing poems. And this poem is, you have, I notice, and it's amazing that for me, you have kind of Lowell's kind of uh, kind of dark energy 
and yet you you don't uh, the, you don't kind of make language into a complete wrought iron fence either, <laughs> right? Um, and I think that it's just you know it just reminded me of how like you keep reading, you keep reading, and you kind of like you know just the way uh, one develops. I just I found that your poems in this book are just you know they feel like just spot on like you've arrived at something but some of these line breaks uh the one who knows is off on another job there's connotations throughout this poem uh <laughs> well, I, yeah i know i mean I, i'm laughing because i sort of feel almost you know i feel guilty about it in a way i mean it's it's a little neat you know but that but i like i, I, I mean never... it's sort of a mixture you know because i mean what oppressed lowell was that lowell had such a richness of uh, you know, reference points. Right. You know, he had just, oh, he's a guy who, I mean, he was obviously sort of mentally ill anyway, but I think his knowledge fueled his illness. Right. And he could lose control of, of, of his life, but also his, his poems at times. And so, I mean, I think you're right. Lowell is a great, there's a great kind of energy and it is a dark energy, but I, I mean, obviously, you know, if you, you know, you know, Starbuck used to hang around, I and mean, he was, you know, classmates with Ann Sexton right. and Sylvia Plath, you know, and he sort of deeply um, taught us, like, this kind of tragic, this <laughs> romance of the tragic is is not good for your work. Um, it's, it's sort of Eileen Simpson poets in their youth stuff, you know, because we all still, you know, read, talk about many of us love, you know, Berryman and all. And, and but the thing is, you can't go where those guys went, right. and it's not good for you. <laughs> so you have to sort of um, stay within the reaches of your own uh, ability and sanity. I think that's a really great plan, but you still, I think you you're knocking on those doors when you write, you know, the strips of insulation in the attic hang down, flayed and torn. I mean, that is, I mean, that's just gorgeous. It really is amazing. And, uh, you know, the gospel truth, I noticed in the, in the book that maybe you, you kind of turn back to gaze at your kind of, uh, your religious impulse. Um, yeah, this one who knows is off on another job. And I, I just thought, Oh, this is somebody off on another job, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, well, there's going to go torture someone else. <laughs> well, we were talking, you know, just as we were talking about, there is, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it isn't entirely a pun, but I mean, you know, the suffering of a job is as enriching as, <laughs> yeah, and necessary as any other kind of suffering. Yeah. But what was important to me there, um, although that was p- part of it was, was really that, uh, you know, Matthew had a job. St. Matthew had a job. Right. I mean, <laughs> that was his job, <laughs> Collect, collecting taxes. <laughs> it's a fascinating thing, you know, so that it sort of brings, sort of, it brings a, an aspect of, um, of the Christian religious tradition back where it belongs, which is to earth. I know, um, that is really good. You might have a job uh, that involves... Uh, this, that, the other thing, and it might be suffering, or it might be um, a path through something else. Right. Redemption, I don't know, something else. Yeah, and the, Something uh, that you're aiming at, anyway. Definitely. <laughs> and that he did not know that mites live in our eyelashes. <laughs> it's just, I love... Well, the thing is, you know, Matthew was so severe. <laughs> I mean, that was the thing, is that, you know, who can live up to this? Right. Uh, to me, one of the mysteries is not... 
like a metaphysical mystery exactly or a mystery of of redemption. The mystery is why why are um these strictures so hard on us? You know, why why do we go wrong why are we wrong all the time? <laughs> it is incredible. <laughs> like you get a mote in your eye or a beam. Yeah. I mean who wants that? I, I mean, nobody does that on purpose. So to remove it, it's not, you know, why is it a moral question? It's it's an instinct to remove it. Right. So why should we be wrong, uh, sinners, but we feel we are anyway? So there you go. So there you go. <laughs> so the next poem I was going to uh, have you read is The Man Who Walks Like Me on page uh, 49. Right. The Man Who Walks Like Me. Now that my father isn't around anymore. I'm the guy at home who has to look old. I saw a guy just like him limping around. I limp around, too. Shaking out the sheets of her newspaper on the plane, an elderly woman who annoyed the hell out of me in the adjacent booth of my lone, dumb sorrow. She harumphed like a nightingale who sings then sends you the bill. Meanwhile, it's still light out. It's still day. I denounce my own day. Then I walk out just like the man who walks like me. I studied him hard, but the body is no scientist. Thank you so much, Don. It was great. You know, it was funny, when I just heard you read this one, she harumped like a nightingale. It was, and then that sent you the bill. It was, I mean, it made me kind of think of your experience in Amherst and people laugh because I think I laughed at its accuracy <laughs> that <laughs> that things that strike us true make us laugh. And so I don't know. I well, just, I, you know, you know, it's the thing about that. There is a reference I should uh, or a source I should, <laughs> which is the, the Nightingale who sings and sends you the bill. I think it's from Artie Shaw who was talking about a singer, you know, Artie Shaw. Sure big band he had a lot of female singers and right. he knew you know a lot of musicians and that's how he i think he described uh somebody kind of nastily using a version of that wording <laughs> <laughs> that's great and uh you know you mentioned your father um does he find his way into your poetry a lot you know it's a funny thing um i you know when you're sort of a younger poet you always look around and you say, you know, if I get married, I'm not writing about being married in my poems. You know, I'm not that icky. I'm not doing that. Right. And, you know, like you said, somebody has a kid. You say, if I have a kid, I'm not writing about that in my poems. You know, and it's like, I'm not writing about my father. If somebody dies, and, you know, there's this whole thing, right? Right. The, against the lyric, which is like, oh, if I see another another poem with somebody's father dying in it or a grandfather. You know, if I see another poem like that, I'm going to puke. You, know, right. you just hear this every, every minute of the day. Definitely. And you tell yourself that. I'm not going to do that. Well, let me tell <laughs> people who haven't experienced it. If you become a father or a mother, you will write about it. Right. If somebody dies close to you, you can have great notions and beliefs uh, about the value or the lack of value of lyric poetry as it's sort of stigmatized today or confessional poetry, right. another term of abuse. But it's going to get in there for most of us. And there's no, there's 
no point in shutting it out. I tried to shut it out. I mean, you know, my, when my old man died, I just said, well, this is my personal thing. That's kind of, um, it doesn't make psychological sense to say this great thing, this great, uh, kind of milestone right. occurred and I'm going to ignore it. I totally <laughs> you know, I'm agree not with even going to pay any attention to it in my poems. My poems will never know that this happened. Well, I just don't know how to do that. Well, it was so funny. I, I tell this story kind of a lot because it scarred me when I was, I was at Columbia doing the MFA and Richard Howard told me this story that uh, he was, you know, a young man at the time and he was sitting in proximity to Auden and listening to Anne Sexton read. And, <laughs> and it was about a poem about her, like grandmother or something. And I mean, this could be told a myth. I have no idea, but he told me he heard Auden like lean over to somebody and said, "Who gives a shit about Anne Sexton's grandmother?" <laughs> and when I heard that story, I almost like died. I was like, "I will but never write. I will never write my grandmother ever. I will not write about." And I think you're still <laughs> right that like. Yeah, but remember, Auden's the guy who wrote, you know, lay or sleepy head, my love, you know? <laughs> I'm, come on. So I Auden, that was a great remark. I know. Auden's a big remarker. But look at his look at his poems. It doesn't make any sense. They're filled with his, you know, his 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 family life, his personal relationships. Exactly. It's, filled, it's filled with them. Look at New Year letter. It's just one person he knows after another. You could say, well, who cares if he knew Eric, a man, and exactly. you know, it's going to marry her. To I mean, but but the point is, a poem can make you care, even right. when people say they're not gonna. Right, and you know, the poem overcomes resistance. That's a you could say a poem is an instrument to overcome resistance. I love if it's that. Good enough. Yeah, I've I've read interviews with poets who, um, kind of in their younger careers, have been known to be kind of experimental, or you know what I'm talking about. And, yeah, yeah. and I'll see in interviews where either their publisher will kind of characterize their latest work this way, or they will themselves in an interview. But it'll be like they'll start like their personal life is encroaching on their newer work as they got older. And it, and it's kind of like this big kind of, this is the most personal they've ever gotten, you know, kind of like, like they're making some deal with the devil almost or yeah. like it's a big, it was a big artistic decision for them. And, and I like, <laughs> right. and I, <laughs> And well, I, here's the way here's the way I look at it, though. You see, like I didn't say anything about my father. I didn't right. say what his name was or what he did. Or well, I, I mean, I snuck something in about him that is just for my thing. But the point is, it isn't even about my father. I mean, many of us lose somebody. A lot of us will lose our or had lost our father. So again, it's not just like my little sad day. You know, it's just everybody goes through a certain kind of experience. And and so the poems reflect that or are educated by that in some way. I mean, it's at the back of our basic human experience, whether we care or not or or want to write about it or not. It's still there anyway. I mean, it's just sort of the elephant in the living room for many right. of us. Yeah, and I like how you say that, you know, it'll ha like that stuff, those milestones in your personal life encroach in your poetry because – there is something about <laughs> intrinsic to poetry that makes you want to kind of wrestle with those things in, in verse. So, yeah, yeah I really I mean, like at the same time. I didn't want to beat anybody up with my, you know, you know, you know, my grief is not interesting, <laughs> you know, so I wasn't, so the poem doesn't cry, you know, the poem I, isn't 
crying or weeping or anything. It's just, oh, no. But it yeah. took into account something that was part of the world in, in which it was uh, being scribbled. So. Right, and I think it goes back to the whole idea of meshing in your work. I think it makes perfect sense. I think it really does. So let's turn to uh, Fantasia on the Rapture, which is just an unbelievably accomplished poem uh, on page 79. <laughs> I appreciate that. Sure. Sure. Let me see here. Fantasia on the Rapture. You know that part of a movie where it's almost over, but not quite, and you're glad? Well, that is where I am with life. The horror of just being a line or being contracted into a line, a line that shatters into a thousand aberrations. I could not even retreat dead into emotions, so measure my life in occupations and recycling instead. I have learned to dissemble Montclair, and if I had any real gumption, I'd machine gun that great big collected poems of so-and-so. We have come, Yeats was told by the unknown writer, to give you metaphors for poetry. Like him, my wife tells me, I have been engaged in bouts of snoring, of sleeps, of dreams with sounds, hallucinations, scents, flashes of light, and movements of external objects, namely mosquitoes and cats. On whose esoteric authority are we to accept all this rapture? Isn't it all just a hearty bit of tombe perdu? I eat, pray, leave. I asked for some TLC, but all I got was the learning channel. Well, life is nothing if not educational, cultural, capital, absolutitis. I don't believe that an individual is the result of a crowd of a million divided by a million. And I don't believe in pinning you down like a butterfly or know how many stars should be in the evening sky before we start to pray. But I do know that affliction most do give us eyes to see. Don, thanks. That was great. There's so much going on in this poem. <laughs> I <laughs> really, I really like there. It's really been really just been a delight to go through this book um, the last couple of weeks. And, and again, your language, you have such a great way of kind of, you know, kind of cunningly referring to, the historical at first when I was like measure my life in occupations and recycling instead I was like yeah occupations you know like jobs and then I was like oh also the behavior of empires you know like that's right well that's it that's it in a nutshell I mean it's like you know just when you think you're going about your internal private business what right. you are doing is participating in the workings obviously of the whole of everything right uh, and that is just it's really incredible because you yeah, have to measure my life and occupy and then and a trusting intuitively language to kind of lead you there into flowering those meanings. It's so great. Um, what was, uh, what, what, how does this poem come about? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you know, it was sort of, you can tell, I mean, it's a bit of a, uh, 
a mishmash. I mean, it's about it's a kind of distraction um, that you feel when you're sort of down and out. I mean, you get distracted and, and it's hard to concentrate and all this stuff is is going on. And you and if you're trying to write poems, you worry about like uh, you know what, what what should what can I be doing? And you're always aware of the big collected poems of so and so. You know, so these great. sort of things hover around heavily. I love you know, that. <laughs> and so, so, uh, and 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 at the time, you know, I was interested in how, I mean, Yeats, who's the most sort of dramatic as well as melodramatic of poets, yeah. was so, you know, got so hung up in automatic writing. I mean, because that's sort of antithetical to what Yeats really is known for. I know that whole and, period is crazy if you think about. It. <laughs> yeah, and the sleeps I mentioned—that's. I was wondering Yeats, about that. Well, that's right out of Yeats. You know, these um, the unknown writers, you know, these presences who would come to Yeats when they were doing the automatic writing, Yeats and his wife. Yeah. And he, according to Yeats, these presences came to give him metaphors for poetry, which I just love. I just love that. I love that. <laughs> Somebody had to give Yeats some metaphors. Oh, it's these weird <laughs> <laughs> automatic writing spirits. So right. I love that. And one of the things that... Um, happens in the automatic writing is the the words are spelled kind of funny yeah um and sleeps is spelled s-l-e-a-s <laughs> and it looks sort of like apnea is about to unfurl i was spelling that. that way that's so funny <laughs> so that's the snoring it's sort of a, like like you're saying it blossomed into the sleeps uh which you know i think again you reach a you reach an age or something and you start snoring and it, to me it's sort of the vocalization of inchoate, <laughs> sort of accumulated angst. That is hilarious. Uh, and I was just trying to put that back in 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 poems, you know. And, and so yeah. for this, this was kind of it wasn't automatic writing, but you know there was a kind of rapture that I was aiming toward. I mean, I was thinking about that. Like, you, we think of raptures being like up in the sky, up in right. heaven. It's about to t- descend upon us and do something to us, and everybody's waiting. Like, when is it going to come? Right. And meanwhile, we're sort of snoring, sleeping through life. Oh, that is you know, so recycling everything. You know, we're what do we do? Well, I'll take the recycling out, and you know, who knows if I'll get back in? Yeah, to and the, the house. You know, <laughs> no, I think you nailed it completely. With and then the hearty bit of uh, it's temps Purdue, Is that right? Temps Purdue, It's like uh, it's like lost time. It's like you know the Proustian. Oh my god! Know, like the thing. I I love the thing it. we lose. It's I'm, time. That is great. Oh my gosh. So this affliction too at the end just killed me. Um when pinning you down like a butt oh gosh. There's so much going on in the end here too. I, I don't know why I thought the crowd of a million divided by a million and I don't believe in pinning you down. That million million pinning. And then yeah, yeah. and then they kind of and then it kind of scatters you bring the reader's eye, you kinda of drag it like a computer cursor. Right up to the sky, how you know how many stars yeah. should be in the evening sky before we start to pray? That is just heartbreaking. Um, it's really a beautiful poem. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's like, what do we have to do to get some rapture around here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when 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 do we do it? When what do we do? And I want to tweet about it when it comes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how we'll know. That's how we'll know. <laughs> so the uh, a million my, tweets. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> um, the last poem I'm gonna have uh, you read and take us out on is called 
looking over my shoulder. Right. Well, this one does. This one's, I think, clearer. Doesn't need much explanation. I'm so tempted to say it's a true story, but <laughs> don't. Yeah. You know, like poets always want to say, this really happened. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if this sort of happened. So it's called looking over my shoulder. I went to heaven once, sadly leaving my push mower and orange snow shovel behind, like uneaten food pushed aside on a stark china plate. The man upstairs was not happy. He liked a sharp blade in a clear driveway. His strictures were stringent enough to shrive a cactus. Yet it was I who blindly insisted on formalities and stood on what I thought was ceremony. I could scarcely taste the beer he poured or eat my ham sandwich. When our visit was over, he shook my hand and sent me somersaulting back to my village where I was filled, thank God, with genuine salt. Don Share, thank you. Kind of, I have met my maker, and now, John, I have met you. Not I really, in that order. I really appreciate you coming on New Books and Poetry. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a great, great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Me too.